0: Hey, thanks for tuning in to the latest sermon. We pray that it challenges you, blesses you, and ultimately that it would stir your heart's affection for Jesus. Enjoy. Let's, uh, let's pray together as we come into the message this morning. If you can bow with me. Heavenly Father, we just said, great are you, Lord. And uh, I pray that in our hearts we would know of your greatness, that we would know that our our life and our very being is, is held together in your hands. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us today, that we would know that you are with us, that we would know that the presence of Jesus is in this place with us today as we worship his name, as we call on his name, and that the peace that transcends human understanding would descend upon us as we gather together in a dwelling place of the Lord most high. and We pray this in your name, Jesus, amen. So when you're a parent, you have a lot of moments that can be really scary as a parent. There's things your kids get into or things that your kids do that are really, uh, yeah, they can be really scary. And one of the scariest moments in uh, Lori and, and our life was when Ryan had his allergic reaction to peanuts. We were out at a Bible camp that was 15 minutes away from Salmon Arm. And so when you're 15 minutes away from a place and your kid is having a severe allergic reaction to peanuts, and it took a while to figure out what was going on, and we realized, oh, he's eating peanut butter toast. He must be having alla- a reaction to peanuts. and he had, he had hives all over his body, and it was terrifying. Um, and so we were you have to make decisions in that moment. Right, you're, you're incredibly worried, you're incredibly terrified, you're 15 minutes away from the nearest hospital and you go, do we phone an ambulance or we drive there ourselves? What's the best course of action in this, in this moment? And uh, my friend who was a volunteer firefighter was like, take my vehicle and you can go as fast as you possibly want all the way there. No one's going to question you. Just get there. They'll think I'm on a fire call. So we did that. And so it was, you know, you can imagine that moment, this really intense fear. There's a lot of worry. There's a lot of anxiety. You're not exactly sure what to do. Now, I had this thought as I was doing this passage. Imagine with me if one of my friends, because we were with all my friends, said, whoa, 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 guys, wait a minute. Scripture says don't worry about anything instead pray about everything. I don't know why you guys are so panicked. You should just be praying about this right now. You know, of course we were praying as we were rushing around trying to decide what to do. But I I think about this. Have you ever had Christians who just like use inappropriate scripture verses at like the most in, inappropriate times? And you're like, that's not helpful at all. And it's completely out of context. And so... That phrase, don't worry about anything, instead pray about everything, comes from the last part of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And Philippians is one of my favorite books of the Bible, because it's full of beautiful verses, and I, and I kind of think of them as like coffee cup theology verses, because they look really, really good on the side of a coffee cup, like don't worry about anything, instead pray about everything, or rejoice in the Lord always, like wonderful things, they fly off the shelves of Christian bookstores, they're making people a lot of money, um, and they're beautiful. But what I realized about a lot of these beautiful scripture passages is we need to understand them and use them well. We need a little bit of background context to get the full nuance of what Paul is saying. And when we get the full context of what Paul is saying, when we understand like everything that's going on as Paul pens these beautiful words, I think they become even more beautiful. And so we're going to begin today in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And Paul begins... He says the same thing again that he said in verse 3 or in chapter 3 verse 1. He says rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. So Paul talks about joy in the Lord 16 times in this letter. And this is the second time that Paul specifically tells people rejoice in the Lord. And we saw it last week in verse 1 of chapter 3. And so, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Beautiful verse. And it's one of those verses that work really well when life is going great, when things are going your way, and when the future looks bright. But it's a lot harder to follow this instruction when everything in life seems to be falling apart, and when your dreams are shattered, and when the future looks bleak. So let's understand the context of these words, because it's going to give us a depth of beauty as we understand it. When Paul writes these words, his life would be, by our standards, falling apart. And his future, as he writes these words, looks, by human, worldly standards, to be incredibly bleak. So as Paul writes 16 times about joy in the Lord, as he writes these words, rejoice in the Lord always, he is in prison. And he's not sure if he's going to live or die. And the church that he is writing to is very aware that in other places in the Roman Empire, persecution has broken out against the Christians. And so the church in Philippi are aware that at any moment, the governor and the government of their city might turn against them and persecute them or arrest them. And so Paul and the believers he writes to are in the midst of uncertainty. They're in the midst of this place where they're like, we don't know what the future is going to hold. And so the question becomes, how do we rejoice in the Lord when life seems to be shaky at best? It's because even when the future is uncertain... And even when life is not going according to our plan, this is what Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, the Lord is near. So even when the future is uncertain, even when life is not going according to plan, the promise of Scripture is that the Lord is near. That's what Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. And so we can ask the question, well does Paul mean the Lord is near in this like eschatological way, like the return of Jesus is imminent, so don't worry about things? Or does he mean the very presence of Jesus is with us always? The presence of Jesus is near. And I would say in the context of this verse that Paul's going to start talking about the peace of Jesus that guards our hearts and minds. He's meaning the presence of Jesus is with us always. So he's not talking about the eventual return of Jesus. He's saying right here, right now, in the midst of my prison cell, in the midst of your uncertainty, the Lord is near. He's talking about the very real presence of Jesus. In times of worry and anxiety and suffering, we are reminded the Lord is near. Scripture tells us, this is one of my favorite psalm passages, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. And we've got personal experience of this. I remember when Lori had her miscarriage, and I've mentioned this before, but it, it just, this is where it, it kind of comes out at the forefront where we experienced the promises of Scripture so obviously, we were just heartbroken and just shattered, and Lori especially, and I'd never, ever seen grief in Lori like that, never. And, and I, I remember in that moment, there's no joy to be found in that moment. But I remember praying with her and praying for this peace that, that Scripture promises, this peace of Jesus to fill us in our hearts. And we had a few close friends praying with us for the same things. And we had in my mind this this miraculous moment. It wasn't instant, but, but this grief that was so profound that it seemed chaotic. Like it was hard to put sentences together. The grief was so deep. And our joy was completely robbed. And I remember thinking, I don't know if life will ever be the same. I remember thinking to myself, the grief seems so deep and the grief seems so profound. I don't know if it will ever be normal again. I don't know if our joy will come back. I don't know if our peace will come back. I don't know what the future holds for us in this moment but I'm going to pray, because uh, what else can we do? And peace came back. Uh, uh, for me, it came very quickly, and for Lori, it was over a period of a couple of days, but that's still very quick. We had this, this sense of peace and well-being, and even our joy returned fairly quickly. We, we were still in grief. We still grieved, but there was this underlying well of peace and even joy. Now, when I prayed for Lori and myself, Lori and I didn't pretend that everything was fine and we didn't pretend everything was great. We didn't say, oh, the Lord's here, we're all good, we're just going to rejoice in the Lord now. That'd be stupid. That'd be a lie. Instead, we are honest about our hurt, we are honest about our questions, we are honest about our sorrow. As Matt Chandler puts it, he says, God is not glorified when you act happy about horrific things. He's glorified when, in the deepest possible pain you experience, you still find a way to say, I trust you. Help me because my heart is failing in my chest. So when I prayed with Lori, I prayed with trust that Jesus could do, in that moment, what seemed to be humanly impossible. That, that Jesus would bring peace and comfort and return us to joy, and, and he really did meet us there. And it was, in my mind, really miraculously quickly. It was just over a period of a couple days. But I've talked with other Christians who, who maybe there's a cancer diagnosis, you know, brain cancer, and it's going to be a four-month journey until eventual end of life. And every single day when they wake up, they have to go to Jesus and they have to say, Jesus, I need your peace and your presence today because I can't do this without you. And at the end of the day, they're so spent that when they wake up in the morning, they need to come to Jesus again and say, Jesus, I need you in this moment because without you, I have nothing left. And so often I've talked to Christians in those moments of desperation and they'll say, I don't understand it, but I know Jesus is with me. I don't understand it, but I know there's a deep peace within my soul, even though I shouldn't have any peace. Randall actually sang a song about that. This peace, that, that, where does it come from? When life is all chaotic and everything is out of control and the future is uncertain, and yet there's this peace, this supernatural peace that comes from Jesus Himself. And there's this joy of the Lord. That even in the midst, I've talked with people that even in the midst of of great suffering and great sorrow, there's still this spark of joy in the Lord. Because the joy of the Lord is a promise to us. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Remain in my love if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commands and remain in his love. And then he says this, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And so the promise of Jesus is that you will have his love, you will have his peace, and you will have his joy. Now, maybe as I've been talking, you've had some painful memories come back. Maybe you've had really painful and dark memories and maybe you're thinking, well, you can talk about the joy of the Lord because you have not lost what I've lost. You haven't experienced what I've experienced in my life. And you're right. I probably haven't lost what you've lost and I haven't experienced what you've experienced. And I've talked to Christians so I go, I don't know how you're still standing after the amount of of suffering you have taken. But all I can do is, is ask that you would trust in the goodness of God. And follow what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. And it's all relational. Come to your heavenly Father with boldness in your time of need. So Paul seems to link this, this idea of gentleness. He says, Let your gentleness be evident to all, and he links it with rejoicing in the Lord and with coming to the Lord with your anxieties and prayer, right? He writes this in, in verses 5 through 7. He says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about everything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's something spiritual that's occurring when we've unloaded the cares and the worries and the stress that we carry onto the Lord because we know He cares for us. It leads us eventually to peace, joy, and gentleness. And I find often when we're carrying a heavy load of worry and we haven't brought it to the Lord, we just keep cycling those worries and problems and obstacles and sorrows around and around in our minds. We can't sleep because we're just thinking about all the things that are going on in life that are out of our control. And, and we wake up in the morning and we're not rested. And we, and we think the first our first thought in the morning is the worries that we have. And how are we going to get through this thing? And so often when it's those types of worries, there is no easy answer. There is, it's out of our control. And here's what I find. If, if that's where we land, if, if we don't bring it to the Lord, if we don't cast our cares upon Him, if we don't come to Him in prayer and unload our burdens upon Him, we won't be gentle. Paul says, let your gentleness be heaven to all. I guarantee you, if you are at your emotional limit, because you are constantly in your mind thinking about all the, the horrible things that could happen or are happening or will happen, and you haven't brought it to the Lord in prayer, the opposite of gentleness will come pouring out of you. And I, I had an experience like that, I think I shared it in one of my sermons, but when I was, I'll just quickly do it again, it's such a great example. We were window washing, that's uh, what I used to do in Calgary, and we pulled up to this lady's house and she wanted her inside windows done, and we said, okay, and she was really stressed. Like, she was like, uh, don't get anything dirty, she was following us around with like towels to like make sure we didn't like drip any water anywhere, and we're like, we're very careful, like we're professional at this, we do this all the time. But she was like really on edge. And then I moved her couch away from the wall, and there was all these scratch marks where people had sat on the couch and banged against the wall. But she came at me. Like, she was like, look at the damage you've done to my house. I was like, there is literally no way I could have damaged your house like this in 30 seconds. Like, this is, this is clearly deep, you know, woundedness to the wall here. And uh, But she was, she was furious, and she was going to demand that we leave her house, but then my foreman uh, kind of talked her down, and, and we kept on doing the job. And the whole time, Shine FM was playing in the background, <laughs> right? So she's worshiping God and tearing a strip off of us at the same time. And uh, we're, all, we're all Christians, and we're all in Bible college. So at the end of that job, my, my friend went in to, to talk to her, and he said, we were like we were sitting in the truck, we were like, that was wild. That is the most uncomfortable experience we've had with any customer ever. Like, she's, she's on another level of uptight. So, we're like, what are we going to do? My friend says, um, well, she was listening to Christian music. I'm going to just, like, mention that. You know, we, we listen to Shine, too. So, anyways, he goes in, and he's like, hey, we just noticed you were listening to Shine FM. Like, we're all Bible college students. It was really nice to be in an environment where there was worship music playing in the background. And then she just, like, she felt so guilty and so, like, ashamed and appalled at her behavior and so she tells us this whole story she had just got asked to lead the Sunday school ministry at her church and she was so overwhelmed and she was so stressed out by by this eventual move into leading this Sunday school program that she was like it's consuming my life and I am not the person I want to be because I am constantly feeling worried and stressed about this. I'm like boy if that if if serving your church is going to lead you to be like that don't serve in your church. But I think the bigger principle is this, is she was carrying that load on herself, right? She was saying, I've got to do it, and I've got to do a good job of it. And I'm like, hey, just take it to Jesus. Cast all your cares upon him, and then that gentleness of the Lord will come out. There are so many things in this life which can rob us of joy and cause us to become bitter and angry and overwhelmed and chokes out the gentleness in us. And the way that we persevere and continue to rejoice in the Lord and display gentleness is by consistently bringing those things to Jesus. As Paul tells us in this passage, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I want to be really clear that, that joy and gentleness are often not things we can produce in ourselves by our own will. This is why both joy and gentleness are listed as fruits of the Holy Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit produces these qualities in us through our relationship with Jesus. And as we remain in Jesus, these things develop and grow within us. One of the most amazing things to me is when you read stories of the persecuted church, and you'll have, you know, someone who's like, yes, they beat me four hours a day every day, and then I went back to my cell and I prayed, oh Lord, would you spare their lives? I'm like, What? Imagine you getting beat for four hours a day every day in a jail cell and then going back and being like, oh, Lord, would you please spare them? I'd be like, oh, Lord, please strike them dead and let the, let the doors of the jail open up. But there's something about suffering and hardship and persecution and the nearness of Jesus that produces gentleness and joy within us as we remain in Jesus and that's why that relational component of our faith is so important. The first step is believing what scripture says is true, that the Lord is near. And once we believe this to be true, the next step is to activate what you know to be true, and you come to the Lord who is near in prayer. You pray to him. Now, when you're in a tough circumstance, it's natural to be worried or stressed or afraid or even angry, right? When you go through deep sorrow and deep loss there's situations that rightly cause worry and stress and, and sorrow in us. And if you don't believe the Lord is near, if you don't believe he hears you or cares about you, you're going to be stuck in that place. Or the opposite side, what sometimes I've seen people go, yeah, yeah, I know the Lord is near, but, you know, it's just God's will, so I'm just going to take it. And it, it kind of sounds good on the outside, like, but it's a really fatalistic attitude. It's like, well, if God wills it. And I'm like, you know what you really need to do, what the psalmists teach us is you need to be honest with God and you need to go to God and you need to, to establish that relationship and you need to cry out to him and go, God, I don't know what you're doing or why you're doing it, but I want it to stop. You ever notice the psalmists are doing that all the time? And, and I think that there's this fatalistic attitude that some Christians have been steeped in to go, boy, life is terrible, but okay, that's just, you know, God wills it, so I'm just gonna lay back and take it. And I'm like, I don't think that's gonna get you past into that place of, of experiencing the peace of the Lord. If you don't take advantage of that relational component of the faith, that the Lord is near, that he hears you, that he responds to you, you stay stuck and consumed by your worry. And so in our worry, we're invited to approach God and cast all our cares upon him. Matt Chandler puts it like this. He says, when we pray, we are worrying at God. We take those anxieties and we direct them Godward, and we're taking them to him, placing them before him, and of utmost importance, we're handing those things over to him. Martin Luther um, once said, pray and let God worry. That's that's simplistic, but I'm like, that's actually pretty good, pretty good advice. And I think we have a supreme example of this in the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus is facing his impending arrest and torture and execution. And Jesus is so grieved and so broken by, by what he knows is coming that he's sweating blood as he prays. And he prays, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And then he adds, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. But I look at this, I go, what has Jesus done here? Well, he's taken his worry and he's directed it at his father. He takes his worry and his fear to his father and he hands it over. He doesn't say, I'm fine with it. Like, he's like, I'm really worried about it. And if there's any way that we could not do this thing, that would be fantastic. But if it is necessary, then not my will, but your will be done. And to me, that gets both those things across. The honesty, I don't want to do this. But if it is your will, I will do this. And I think that's that, that idea of handing it over to the Lord. And so I often tell people, sometimes I have people come in and, you know, they're just overwhelmed by life. And they have a whole list of things going on in their life that overwhelm them. And so just for a really practical piece of advice, if you feel overwhelmed in life, this is, this is usually what I tell people. I say, first, make a list of all the things that, that are overwhelming you that you can control. That you, you can have some measure of control over. There's something you can do to affect to change here. And, and all I want you to do is, is now make a plan. When am I going to do it and how am I going to do it? And then pray about it. I call that the Nehemiah principle. Pray, then do. Pray, then do. Pray, then do. That's, that's what you got to do. And, and then I want you to make a list of all the things that you have no control over. It's completely out of your hands. You're worried about it. You're right to be worried about it. But you don't have control over it. Those are the things that every time it comes into your mind, I want you to pray. I want you to say, Lord, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to go on in my life. But I need your peace. I need your presence. And I need you to carry this burden with me. And it's because it's that relational component of prayer where our hearts and minds can be filled with the peace of God. Where he meets with us. He speaks to us. He comforts our troubled hearts. In prayer, we come into God's presence. And it is in his presence that he fills us with his peace. And so often, like I said, I've had conversations with Christians where their circumstances haven't changed at all. And yet they'll say something like this. There's peace in my inner being. I still have cancer. I still have the MS diagnosis. I still have the wayward son or daughter. But for some reason, there's a peace in my inner being. And it's not related to the circumstances because the circumstances haven't changed. I'm still worried, I'm still concerned, but deeper underneath that worry and concern, there's this deep well of peace, and it's giving me strength to face each day. I've seen it over and over again a supernatural peace. And so, as we make our requests, as we cry out to God, Paul gives one more bit of instruction that I think is sometimes difficult. He says, Do this with thanksgiving. As you pray, as you make your request to no one, give thanks for what God has already done. And at first, I, I think, wow. It's really hard in the midst of grief and sorrow and loss and hardship to give thanksgiving to God. But there's something really profound here. When you are in your place of deepest sorrow and deepest pain and deepest hurt, but you remember what God has done in your past, and you say, in this moment, I'm thanking you for what you have done in my past that often helps us remember that God is faithful. This is actually what you see happening in some of the psalms. So I want to give you an example. Psalm 77. The psalmist says, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Just go back to that slide for a second. Do you see the honesty here? This isn't some guy being like, oh yeah, life is really hard, but I know God's good. I know God's good. I used to actually meet with a guy, and his li- like, he w- had he gone through so much in his life, so much hardship and so much sorrow, and, and he, he would often say how much he hated himself, and then he would say, but God is good. God is good. And I'm like, I don't think you believe that. Like, I can tell you don't believe that. And we actually had to get to a place where he was comfortable being honest. And he would say, You know what? Honestly, it doesn't seem like God is very good. It took two years for him to be able to say that. Because we needed the honesty before we could get deeper, before we could really see where God was at work in his life. Because if he just stayed at that surface level, oh, everything, my life is horrible and and I'm despicable and everyone hates me and I hate myself, but God is good, we're not making any progress. There's this honesty that comes in. God, life, life is hard. Where are you? I'm crying out for you. But then the psalmist does this. He says, Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out His right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. So in the midst of this place where I don't feel God's presence, I don't sense God's presence, I don't know where God is, I am still going to remember those times when I saw God at work. And when I do that, it's going to lead me to praise and thanksgiving. And it's going to remind me that God is faithful. And that's really what I did with this, guys. Once we could get through to the honesty, then I could say, but look at where God has truly been at work in your life. Look at where God has truly uh, done a miraculous thing in your life. And then he was able to see the goodness and the grace of God. And so we can praise God for what he has done and still be honest about life as it currently is. And so doing this as we remind ourselves of God's goodness in the past, it reminds us that no matter how dark things currently are, if God has been faithful before, he'll be faithful in the future. That's a hard promise sometimes to remember, but that is what the psalmists consistently do. We're invited to bring these things, uh, worries of our life, into relationship with our Father in heaven. We unload these worries and concerns. We remember his past faithfulness. And it's through this relationship that Jesus walks with us in the storms and the trials of life, and we receive his supernatural peace. Paul says, pray about everything. With thanksgiving, we make our requests known to God. And then he says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I want to just move on to the next section of Paul's instructions because this all comes from the peace that comes from God. Paul writes this. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. And I believe these words are actually linked to the idea of not worrying about anything but praying about everything. Because what we think about drives our behavior and our emotion. What we read, what we watch, what we allow our minds to dwell on, all of those things affect our emotional and spiritual state. And so what I take from Paul's words in this is that if you don't want fear to control you but you want the peace of God in your heart, then you need to be careful of what what voices you allow to influence us. Many of us consume a staggering amount of information through Facebook or cable news or internet articles, talk show hosts. And the truth is that much of the news that we consume is tailored to ignite emotions of fear and anger in us. And if those are the main voices you are listening to, you're gonna have a real hard time walking in the peace of God. That's why Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is noble, think about such things. I wanna give you like a real life example. Matt Taibbi is a journalist who wrote for a lot of different mainstream media um, sources. Uh, he's been a journalist for many, many years, and he wrote a book a few years ago called Hate Incorporated. And as an insider in the, in the news organizations, he said this. He said, pick up any major newspaper, paper, turn on any network television news broadcast. The political orientation doesn't matter. It could be Fox or MSNBC, the Washington Post or the Washington Times. You'll find virtually every story checks certain boxes. I call them the rules of hate. The primary product the news media now sells is division. And he says, I know this because I've created a lot of that content. Over the years, I became increasingly uneasy about feeding readers hate reflexes. The problem we have is the commercial structure of the business. And then he goes on to say this, to make money, we've had to train audiences to consume news in a certain way. We need you anxious, already angry, and addicted to conflict. We've discovered we can sell hate, and the more malicious the rhetoric, the better. And maybe he overstates it, but at one point in the book he says this. He says, we really want you awake at night with your teeth chattering, panicking about things over which you have no control. I see that. And I've seen Christians get sucked into it. And, and you talk to them, and, and what you hear out of their mouths is, I'm fearful, I'm fearful, I'm fearful, and now I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm angry. And if I'm fearful and angry at these people, I also hate them. So if we're spending hours each day reading news stories or watching people on news programs tell us how terrible everything is, how terrible things are going to get, how terrible the people are who disagree with us, if those are the major voices we listen to, it will not lead you to the peace of Christ. It's going to lead you to negative places. You're not going to be a person filled with gentleness and joy if the voices you listen to fill you with fear, anger, and anxiety. So Paul tells us, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So if you want to walk in the peace of Christ, my other recommendation is that, you know, at the end of summer and the start of fall, maybe take an extended break from social media or cable news if you notice that really what it does is ignite fear or anger or anxiety in you. Right As I mentioned last week, instead, maybe make some space there to do spiritual practices which fill you with the abundant life in Christ. Make space for the voice of Jesus to be the loudest voice that you hear. And when the voice of Jesus is the loudest voice in your life, when all those other voices are put in their proper place under the feet of Jesus, then we can, like Paul, learn the secret of being content, where Paul says this, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I can be content in every situation. Now, Paul's saying this because he knows the believers in Philippi are worried about him. They've been attempting to help him out while he's been in prison. So Paul's reassuring him, hey, because of the nearness of Jesus, I can survive any circumstance. And I just want us, again, to grasp the context of this verse. Francis Chan says context is important because some people have used this verse to say, oh, God wants us all to be rich. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. He can make us all rich. It doesn't matter how poor you are. It doesn't matter if you don't have an education. God wants you to be strong and rich and powerful, and you can do all these things through Christ who strengthens you. Yeah, I've heard people use it like that. And that's exact, Francis Chan says that's the exact opposite of what Paul is saying here. The purpose of this verse is not to tell you can be rich and strong and powerful. The purpose is to tell you you are already rich in Christ. You are already strong in Christ. You are so rich in Christ that you don't need to chase after the riches of the world because Christ is the most important treasure. And I just want you to remember, again, as we talked about peace and joy in the Lord, that Paul is not often in places where he is comfortable, well-fed, or even well-loved. The nature of Paul's life made this difficult. Remember, Paul says, I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stone. Three times I was shipwrecked. I labored and I toiled and I've gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And yet Paul says, even in these ridiculously terrible situations, he is content. For Christ's sake, he says, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong." there is something about hardship and sorrow which draws us closer to Jesus. There are certain times when the presence of Jesus is most strongly felt, when there is nothing that we can do and when nothing we have left. And we go, Jesus, if you're not here, we have nothing. And Jesus so often meets us in that place. And so receiving joy and peace comes by recognizing the treasure of our union with Jesus is through faith is to recognize that the Lord is near, especially in weakness, insult, and hardship. Let's just go back to chapter 1 of Philippians, where Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he means it. Matt Chandler again puts it like this. Paul's saying, if you want to kill me, I'll be more than fine. I'll get to be with Jesus. My death will be filled with Christ. And if you want to live me, let me live, well, then great. I'll press on in my mission, and my life will be filled with Christ. And if you want to torture me or imprison me or mock me, I will trust in God and my suffering will make me like Christ. I will see it as sharing of his own suffering. Through highs and lows, better and worse, richer or poorer, sickness and in health, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you when Christ becomes your all. And so that's why I push back so much when I see Christians dwelling in fear and anger and anxiety. Because I go, in Christ we don't need this. The foundation of peace, joy, and hope is the truth that if we are united in Christ through faith, then we are as secure as Christ is. In fact, according to Jesus, even if they kill you, you won't die. Instead, you go to live with him and be with him forever. It's all about knowing Jesus is near and that he lives with you by the Holy Spirit. So as we close today, I just want to clarify. I'm not saying just have faith and it's all going to work out the way you want And I'm not saying just have faith and and you're not going to experience grief, sorrow, worry, or hardship. I'm not saying it's wrong to feel worried, afraid, stressed, or anxious, because sometimes life is hard and sometimes life is scary. But Paul is communicating to us that our strength comes from Christ who is always near, and especially near in those places of hardship and weakness. In our relationship with Jesus, we will be constantly reassured that he is good, that Jesus is for us and not against us that he will somehow, someday work all things together for the good of those who love him. I'm gonna call the worship team up as we close, but I just wanna say this is a life of faith. So do we always know how Jesus will accomplish goodness in us? Do we know when exactly he will do this? No, we don't know these things, but we rely on the nearness of the Lord, on the relationship we have with him. We remember when he has provided in the past and we keep casting our worries upon him. And I just wanna remind you, Jesus doesn't get frustrated when you keep coming to him over and over with the same worries and concerns, he loves you. He doesn't get bored or tired or frustrated. He's patient, he's gentle, he's kind. And as you keep coming to him, the promise is that your heart and your mind will be given peace that passes understanding, that comes directly from God and not from your circumstances. I want to pray for you before we worship together. Lord Jesus, your word promises us supernatural peace a peace that transcends human understanding, a peace that comes and guards our hearts and minds. And so I pray for everyone here today who maybe is carrying a, a massive burden, and, and those burdens are real and legitimate. Some are, are not sure where they're going to find their next place of employment. Some are sure they're not sure where they're going to live. Some are not sure if they're going to um, have enough. And those are legitimate concerns, and I pray you'd meet those needs. But even in the midst of this worry and this stress and this anxiety, Lord Jesus, I pray your peace would well up. That we would recognize that in you, we will have all that we need. But I do pray for your provision for all that we need. And for the peace that passes understanding to fill our hearts and our minds. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.